Dr. Fritz Klein saw many people die at Auschwitz and Belsen, and was held responsible for those deaths. But was he? Fritz Klein described himself as a Romanian subject of German nationality. He qualified as a doctor in Budapest. In 1945, he was 56 years old. Klein was a dyed-in-the-wool Nazi. He believed, I have no reason to believe, not honestly, that Germany's interests would best be served by the elimination of undesirables. This meant Jews, of course, but also Gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, the disabled and various other categories of people to whom the Nazis had taken a dislike. In present-day company he would, of course, be ostracised, but in 1930s Germany such views were acceptable and indeed accepted. Now a word of warning. To an audience today, as indeed to the British public in 1945, his views were loathsome, but he was on trial for his actions, and only his actions. His views, his manner, his demeanour, are not relevant to the legality or otherwise of what he did. Accordingly, we must look only at his actions, and examine them against the law against which he was being tried. But first, let us look at Klein's treatment in legal terms after his arrest. When the British Army liberated Belsen on the 15th of April 1945, they were presented with an horrific scene. Some 40,000 prisoners had spent the last few weeks without sufficient food, water or supplies. And there was disease in the camp, typhus, cholera, TB, gangrene, and malnutrition, starvation and death. 10,000 dead bodies lay unburied. One of their first actions was to arrest Fritz Klein, the sole doctor on the staff of the camp, as a suspected war criminal. Having done that, the British Army then, in my view, acted reprehensibly. A few days after his arrest, a respected journalist named Alan Moorhead visited the camp and asked to see him. He recorded, As we approached the cells of the SS guards, the British sergeant's language became ferocious. We had an interrogation this morning, the captain said. I'm afraid they are not a pretty sight. Moorhead was then shown into a cell where there were several German SS prisoners who were told to stand. Klein was amongst them. He had been interrogated that morning by a French officer, and as a result of that interrogation he was spattered with blood and had difficulty rising to his feet. He begged to be killed. Lieutenant Colonel Richard Taylor was the British commandant of the camp, and Klein was his prisoner of war. Under international law, Taylor had a duty to protect Klein, and from Moorhead's account it is quite clear that he did not do so. Taylor could, and in my view should, as a minimum, have been prosecuted for the negligent discharge of a duty, and quite possibly for the commission of a war crime. This was a poor start by the British, who wished to charge their prisoners with the very offences which they themselves were committing. But perhaps he deserved it. That is entirely possible. But Klein was suspected of war crimes, he had not been tried, and the charge against him had not been proved. In the eyes of the law, he was assumed to be innocent until proved guilty. That's the way we work. That's the rule. If you can know that he deserved it without going through the business of holding a trial, then we might as well do away with trials and simply proceed to sentencing. But this was not the only violation of the Geneva Convention inflicted on Klein. There is a famous photograph of him being forced to bury dead bodies, and this is usually viewed with satisfaction. 
I make two comments. The Geneva Convention exempts officers who are prisoners of war from work, and if Klein was being forced to work, then it was a breach of the Convention. The second comment is that he was photographed in the middle of an open burial pit, surrounded by dead bodies. It is not clear to me what task he, or indeed anyone else, could have been usefully doing, alone and unaided, where he was standing. He also appears motionless, almost, one might say, in a posed position. It's as though the cameraman wanted a photograph which would associate him with the death around him. Now, the middle of an open burial pit, filled with putrefying bodies, is not likely to be a healthy place to be. Is it possible that he was forced to stand in the middle of that pit in order to increase his chances of catching a disease? We know that between being captured and his trial he contracted a serious disease, possibly typhus, and nearly died. I deeply regret to say that on the basis of the facts available, it appears to me that the physical treatment of this prisoner by the British was far from proper. And unfortunately, that improper treatment appears to have extended beyond the physical to the legal. The prosecution had five months, from the 15th of April to the 16th of September, to prepare its case. The British authorities appointed defence counsel, solicitors, for the 45 defendants, just seven days before the start of the trial, and even then each solicitor had to deal with three or four defendants. I invite you to consider whether a day and a half is an appropriate time for a solicitor to prepare a legal defence for a man on trial for his life. Would that time have been sufficient for him to interview his client, research the law, search for witnesses or documents, and this in a country in a state of chaos, which might have helped his client's case? There must have been doubt in the minds of these counsel. There certainly was in connection with the matter of international law, which we shall discuss in a minute. But they were split between two duties. They were all, bar one, qualified English solicitors. English solicitors are required to do their best for their clients, and if they have decided that the time allocated to them for the preparation of their client's defence was unreasonably short, they were under a duty to refuse the instruction and force the court to make whatever arrangements it thought fit. The alternative would have been to take part in what effectively would be a show trial. Their other duty was as officers of the British Army. In that capacity, they had a duty to follow orders, which were to mount the best defence they could within the time permitted. We shall never know whether they, in fact, saw a conflict between these two duties. What we do know is that they appeared in court on the first day. An added complication was that the trial was being held under international law. As English solicitors, they were well versed in civil law, matters such as wills and trusts, but not so much in criminal law, and certainly not in international law, which is a highly specialised subject. At an early stage in the proceedings, they asked the court, wisely in my view, for the help of a specialist in international law. This request was granted, and Colonel Professor H. A. Smith of London University duly arrived, but only on the tenth day of the trial. What could have been achieved if he had arrived earlier? And now to the charge. The charge which Klein was facing was that whilst at Belsen he had conspired with others to ill-treat Allied prisoners and had caused the deaths of eight of them. A parallel charge was made in respect of Auschwitz. In the transcript of the trial and in the official law report compiled after the trial had been completed, there is no allegation that Klein directly ill-treated any prisoners, Allied or other. 
The success or failure of the charge, therefore, would rest on the prosecution's ability to prove that he had been a member of the conspiracy. A key element in the case against him with respect to Auschwitz, and mentioned many times in the evidence, is that he took part in selections, that is, that he separated those fit from work from those who were unfit, and thereby condemned to death those who were unfit. I think this needs to be looked at more carefully. He was a doctor, and he was given orders to identify those who were fit for work, and those who were not. Doctors in armies throughout the world do this routinely. If a soldier comes to an army doctor with a medical complaint, the doctor must decide whether the complaint is sufficiently serious for the soldier to be exempt duties, or to be returned to them. Prison officers do a similar thing. What those duties are is not the doctor's concern. Klein was in a similar position. He was ordered to make a selection, and what happened to the prisoners after he had made that selection was not his responsibility, and he certainly did not have authority over what then happened to them. You might perhaps think that he should simply have refused to obey his orders. That would have been insubordination, but it would have raised a further question of whether he alone should have refused the order, or whether others on the camp staff should have done so as well. If you consider the sequence of events which led to the death in a gas chamber of a particular person, it probably started with an arrest, then proceeded to transport on a train, some form of processing on arrival at a camp, selection, and then being forced into a gas chamber. Who are the people who bear responsibility for the death? Surely it's everyone from the arresting officer, to the train driver, to the camp commandant, to the civilian contractor who supplied barbed wire, to the man who poured in the gas crystals. If all of them, or even one of them, had not performed their job, the executions would not have taken place. Are they not all guilty? Should they not all be executed? Why, therefore, single out one link in this very long chain? But can a soldier ever be justified in refusing orders? For some, it's a difficult question, but fortunately we now have the British government's view on the matter to help us. Flight Lieutenant Dr Malcolm Kendall-Smith a doctor in the RAF, refused to go to Iraq on the grounds that the war was illegal, and in April 2006 he was duly court-martialed. Judge Advocate Bayliss, announcing the guilty verdict, said that obedience of orders is at the heart of any disciplined force. Disobedience of orders means it is not a disciplined force, it is a disorganised rabble. Those who wear the Queen's uniform cannot pick and choose which orders they obey, and those who do so must face the consequences. The consequences for Kendall Smith were that he was sentenced to eight months in prison and was ordered to pay £20,000 cost. For Klein, the penalty might well have been the loss of his life. And now to the Belson charge. Remember that Belson, unlike Auschwitz, was not an extermination camp, even though many people died there. Klein was posted to Belson in the middle of March to assist the camp medical officer, a Dr Horstman, for a period expected to be about two weeks. Given the shortness of the posting, he was ordered to look after the SS troops. Horsemen unexpectedly left the camp about three days before the arrival of the British, and Klein stepped into his shoes as camp medical officer. In the stores he found a surprisingly large supply of medical goods, as well as a large supply of milk, meat and biscuits. He distributed the food to the children, and to really sick people who were undernourished. 
Impressed by the dreadful conditions, he told Kramer that the bodies should be disposed of and that water was most important since the internees were suffering more from thirst than hunger. Kramer, however, who was of equal rank but held the appointment of camp commandant, said, You can't give me any orders. Belson was, in Klein's view, not a camp for sick people. It was a death camp, a torture camp. The officials from Berlin, having seen the camp, were, in Dr. Klein's opinion, wholly responsible for those conditions, because they kept on sending thousands of people into the camp without providing them with anything like the support they needed. The five British officers, acting as the judges, retired to consider their verdict. After considering the charges against Klein and the relevant evidence for about eight minutes, they decided on their verdict. He was guilty of both the Auschwitz and the Belsen charges, conspiring to ill-treat Allied prisoners and of causing the deaths of some of them. They sentenced him to death, and he was hanged on the 13th of December, 1945. Was this a fair trial in the full tradition of British justice, a trial of which you, as a Briton, could rightly be proud? Did the court come to the right decision? You must form your own view. Thank you.